Hello and welcome to Real Men Feel. I'm your host, author, coach, and healer, Andy Grant. Real Men Feel is here to remind men that they are human beings. Imagine that. And have the right, the desire, the need to own and express all of their emotions. You can learn more about how I help people do that at theandygrant.com. My guest today is Dan Magler. Dan is the mental health director for Pause for Patrick, a nonprofit organization dedicated to connecting young people with mental health issues to emotional support animals. He is also a school social worker, a therapist in private practice, and the host of the podcast, Not Allowed to Die, where he explores the dilemmas he sees clients facing in his work. Dan was one of the people that reached out to me uh, in multiple ways and multiple times during what I now refer to as my dark months. Um, when I finally read his messages, I was really psyched to connect with him. I've already uh, been on his show, Not Allowed to Die, so I'm glad to return the interview favor. So, so Dan, welcome to Real Men Feel. Thank you. I'm a big fan, so I'm very excited to be here. And uh, yeah, this is just exciting to connect with your audience because, again, I think men connecting with their feelings and whatnot is just so incredibly important. So this is a thrill for me. Awesome. Cool. I, I love, love to make dreams come true. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with some of the work you do. Like, like what, What's the range of age for the kids you deal with at school? Well, I work in a high school. So again, it's from you know, the youngest we'll ever have at the high school is 13 to, you know, 19. The high school does service students up to 22 years old, but they're at a different program. And then in my private practice, I have, I usually stay with the teens to people in their fifties or my, like my current clients. And then uh, with Pause for Patrick, we're generally helping people who are from, you know, six years old is the youngest in the families that we've helped all the way up. We've, we've helped people as old as 89, but we tend to focus on young people, which we define as 20, like 26 and under generally is where our main focus is. And what got you interested in sort of mental health work and, and being a social worker and a counselor? Well, I have a lot of family uh, with mental health issues. And so all growing up, whether it was, you know, an aunt with schizophrenia, an uncle with bipolar or whatnot, it was just very natural for us to be discussing mental health things. And I always knew I wanted to help people but I thought I wanted to do it by going into politics. And I worked on a couple campaigns and I thought, well, this is gross. I don't wanna just worry about who's sitting where and who, donations for something. And so I got a job, I thought I wanted to be a lobbyist. So I got a job with a place called the Center for Violence Interruption. And I thought I was gonna go down to Springfield in Illinois and lobby for better laws for gun violence and whatnot. But they said, we need you to go into Chicago public schools and work with kids who've been kicked out to teach them about socialization, like male socialization and how they learn and because and how that leads to violence. And so I did that and I fell in love with direct service and I've kind of really never looked back. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, uh, the, the politics part especially interests me. So you quickly realized it wasn't for you. Mm -hmm. In your brief period there, did you meet politicians that went into this to be of service and quickly realized that this isn't the way to serve? Or did you meet anyone with your kind of initial mindset? I met a couple of people like that, and I've met more people. The vast majority of people I was working with were people who started out idealistic in their college days and whatnot, and then quickly realized that it was all about fundraising. And it was really about organizing dinners, and it was about deciding like who was scratching whose back. And so, yeah, the people, it, it became a lot about logistics more than it was about issues. And I found that it was like, well, when do you get to actually work on the writing of a law or helping anybody? And, and that part is there too sometimes, but for the vast majority of the, the people I went to college with, or the guys who were older than me in my fraternity who had gotten into that life, 
they, they lost that connection pretty quickly. And it was more about, can I get on this next bigger campaign so I can be a staffer to this congressperson who's going places as opposed to really caring about the issues? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you found your <laughs> best avenue to be truly of service, um, much better than uh, setting up dinners and logistics. <laughs> I hope so. And as I mentioned, your podcast is called Not Allowed to Die, which is mm -hmm. really one of my favorite all-time podcast titles I've ever heard. Um, tell me the significance of that name. Well, as I always say on my podcast and to all of the students that I work with, I don't care what it, you do to get through the day. So unfortunately, a lot of the students I work with, they use drugs, they use alcohol, they engage in self-injury, and they can be very hard on themselves about that and self-blaming. And I'll say, I'm glad that you did whatever it took to get you here, because you're here now. And we want to make healthier choices as often as we can. But do whatever it takes to get you through. You're just not allowed to die. If I'm going to work with you, you have to be committed to staying alive and working on it. And that's, that's sometimes a much tougher ask than we wish it was. I was actually referencing you just a few minutes ago. I had a student in my office and she, she said, I wonder if I'm just always suicidal because, you know, it's just always going to be this way. And if it, if it's more, if it's my chemicals or if it's whichever else, and you know, in her family, she's got a huge family history of mental health all over the place. And, you know, her parents are going through a divorce and um, her younger brother is transgender and there's just a lot of stress in the family and things like that. But she is incredible. And I said, you may go through periods where it's better for seven years and then things drop down again, but we can make it through that. We just have to end that sometimes that suicidality is that it feels like an exit, like from the pain. It's not about wanting to be dead. It's about wanting to know that there, I'm not going to always be trapped with that pain and referencing some of what you and I talked about and just that it's, it's not illogical, but we can give you better options. Right. And that's, that's all we want to do. And that's what I focus on a lot of my day. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's, it, I'm, mm, you know, it saddens me that your day is filled with needing to do that, but I'm also yeah. glad you're there to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a job that we wish we could put ourselves out of business. Um, but at the, at the, I think there's a, then I could go into just helping coach people to get a better job or something else like that. But have have you had kids that can't make that commitment? Like I I don't want to be better. Like I can't promise you I I that I will live through today. Well, when they do that, and yeah, that happens, and that's one of the primary questions we'll ask in a suicide risk evaluation. And I say, can you contract for safety? Can you promise me you're going to be alive tomorrow? And if they give me a maybe, then that means we probably have to go to the hospital. Um, but I had another student earlier today who, again, she was having suicidal thoughts again. She's been hospitalized many times. And she's like, I don't, I don't want to necessarily be dead today, but I'm afraid I'm going to get back there. And in her case, it just, it's a, more of a question of, you know, I don't know if I want to keep trying. And so it's not, I'm, I'm going to do anything immediately, but I'm not sure this really feels worth it. And I say, again, and based on her, she's 15 years old, her limited life experience, if most of your life has been pain, why would she, she wants to believe me and all these other adults who keep saying it's going to get better, just hang on. But everything in her life experience is pushing against that. And so, yes, there are kids who will say, I, it just doesn't feel worth it. And I, I had another student who's not suicidal at all, but he was just saying that again today, he was just saying like, I, he wishes his just like atoms would just fall apart. And he would just have to stop hold, trying to hold himself together. He doesn't want to bother his parents. He doesn't, he'll say, I don't want to waste your time. And I said, even if we're sitting in silence, you're never wasting my time. But he's just like, I just want to disintegrate. And he's not going to do anything, 
But yes, it, actively engaging in treatment and help feels pointless to him at this point. And that's, that's tough um, to try to give, because again, we can't, I can't pour hope into their ear or whatnot. I can just reflect back that I, my belief in them and hope that, that that does something for them. Right. You know, it's so refreshing to hear that kids today can more openly talk about it. But mm-hmm. when I was 15, it was only in a mental hospital that I heard anybody mm-hmm. else talk about suicide, which just made it seem like even a, just a crazier thought, like how, mm-hmm. how dare I have this contemplation? So I'm, I'm glad that kids are, are comfortable enough to, to speak openly about it. And you know, one thing I found in my life that no adult ever told me, my 20s were way better than my teens. Mm-hmm. And my 30s were better than my 20s. And my 40s were better than my 30s. Mm-hmm. And even with periods of depression and suicidal thinking in those mm-hmm. decades as well. But, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go be in high school again. <laughs> but yeah. my, my dad always told me that high school were the best years of your life. So I often like if when, when I meet someone, a winning person that's been like, well, good for you. High school's not your peak. That's, that's right. one thing I can guarantee you if you feel like so horrible. So that's one possible way to spin it. But mm-hmm. so yeah, I, I do that. I'll often say, Hey, middle school for most, if I, if I interviewed 180 year olds, the word about the worst time in their life, it was probably middle school era. And then high school tends to be better than middle school. And just like you said, twenties could be better. Thirties could be better. And so it's, it doesn't, if, if you are peaking so often, we misremember our brain cuts out all the boring gunk. It remembers the highs and it remembers the lows. And so for people who had more highs than lows in high school, they, they kind of long for those highs. But the reality is the vast majority of high school is just, you know, boring te- a French test, <laughs> trying to find someone to sit with at lunch. It's not terrible, it's a, but yeah, we can do better. We can do better than that. Yeah, cool. Now, do you ever, are you ever allowed, would, would you ever talk to teenagers on your show? Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that it would either require, again, parent, probably parent consent. And I've had a number of my students request to be on the show, and I'm just getting better with the technology to be able to sort of record with them. And so I have students that, you know, particularly my transgender students or whatnot, who can share a perspective that maybe a lot of people aren't as familiar with that I, I do want to get out into the world because it's, you know, it's one thing hearing from me the dilemmas that my students are facing, but I think it would mean so much more to people to hear it from their actual voices. Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. So was there something specific that prompted you to start the podcast? Um, I think I lost a friend of mine uh, to a heart attack and in, I did his eulogy and in doing his eulogy, I was asking everyone there to write letters to his children about, you know, what stories they remembered, things that he did. And I thought to myself, you know, I actually have some heart issues and I thought I want to, people have often told me to write a book or whatnot, but frankly, a lot of people don't read these days. (laughs) So I thought, well, as kind of this, this podcast is a bit of a love letter to my children that if they ever wanted to hear my voice or my thoughts on anything. So I, I hope other people are getting something out of it, but every recording to me is saying like, here's a little of the way dad's thinking about things that if they were lose me tomorrow, they would still have, they could look up. Oh, what did he think about cognitive behavioral therapy? Or I mean, some of the topics would be more interesting and less interesting than others. But I think that's what that's what got me kickstarted. And it's, it's time. It's time to do this. And plus, I am a podcast junkie. I'm I'm subscribed to 85 podcasts, and I <laughs> I listen to quite a few of them. I listen to two and a half times speed. So when I hear your voice, it's often going a lot faster than it is in uh, uh, like right now. 
Wow. I mean, I, I feel like I'm uh, I talk too fast at normal speed sometimes, <laughs> so I can't imagine me double speed. But uh, good good for you to keep up with all that. Um, uh, what what age are your children right now? My older guy is 11 and he just had his first day of middle school uh, orientation today. And then my younger guy is uh, seven. You mentioned having a family history. Do you worry about what your lineage uh, means for them? Absolutely. And uh, I remember I remember in my dating life, I was dating this girl who uh, she had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And I remember part of the reason I thought, you know, again, it wasn't the whole thing, but by breaking up is like, well, with my family history, with her genetics, that just seems like a bad, um, you know, that, a very risky investment. But yeah, I worry about every time my kids may be overly emotional about something, I worry, you know, again, will they be next? I have, you know, several nephews and nieces who've been hospitalized for being suicidal. I did, I lost one of my nephews to suicide in the last, in January. So knowing, but I think the only advantage of having a family with this kind of history is I will get my kids, if they're showing things, like we already had my younger guy working with the school social worker, you know, during his first grade year, just because, again, he has some really strong emotional reactions to things. And I think by normalizing that, hey, it's okay, when you get, sometimes my younger guy will just, he'll just start crying and say, I'm sad and I don't know why. And I'll say, that's okay. You're just having too many, like, your emotions are coming faster right now than your words can come. And so normalizing that for him and saying, Again, that it's, it, it's okay not to be okay. And so planting that seed early on and that it's okay to get help. I'm hoping that that will be the key to, they may always have some challenges and, and reframing this idea that whatever we think of as a weakness can be our superpower. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I, I, my favorite superhero is Spider-Man. And one of Spider-Man's powers is Spider-Sense. And in our day-to-day -day lives, anxiety is kind of like Spider-Sense. It alerts you to things that could be potential dangers. Now, what we have to do with anxiety is we have to learn to ignore it when it's not a real danger. And I'm sure Spider-Man had to do that all the time. It's like, oh, that pizza delivery guy is not going to punch me in the back of the head. But uh, in depression's superpower can be heightened empathy. And I went through a depressive period when I was in middle school. And I think that's also so much of what made me empathetic to, to friends, to family, to other people like that, to realize that, and the incredible impact that adults had on my life when I was 13 years old by just giving a little bit of belief and saying like, Hey, at that right time, that person comes in and they show a belief in you that can change the course of your life. So I, th I hope for my kids, if they do have mental health challenges, we can eventually help them reframe them as something that makes you special and different, but not less than. Yeah. That, that notion of how powerful an adult believing in you mm -hmm. um, is really true. Like it just brought to mind. So I, I can still remember in the fifth grade, uh, I was goofing off in gym class, doing something I wasn't supposed to, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And the the teacher pulled me aside and, and just said, you know, Andy, you're 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 gonna be a force of nature. Like you have this, you're you're charismatic and you don't even realize it, and your shoulders are really broad. You're gonna be this this big man. You're just I know it, but if you goof off and don't pay attention, you're gonna blow all that potential that you have. And I was like, what? <laughs> really like, I'm like, um, you know, I just felt like this fat, uncoordinated kid. I'm like just trying to hide and not be noticed in the gym class. And he's talking about how I'm like, like my physical stature is intimidating and like, wow. Um, but I, I've never forgot that. So mm -hmm. um, such a casual comment, but it's, it's someone taking the time to like, you know, look a child in the eyes and say something good, something positive, mm -hmm. something hopeful about the future. Yeah. It can just be a, a tremendous impact. 
Now, you mentioned contracting for safety earlier, and I mm -hmm. want to kind of get back to that. And like, I know what that means because I've lived through many of them. But mm -hmm. for someone that's not familiar with that term, could you could you explain what that is? Sure. It's again, for, for a mental health professional or whatnot, when we're assessing someone, we might say, again, like, can you promise me? It's a promise made by the client that they are going to be alive and that they're going to sometimes when you're making a safety plan with someone that who will you contact if things get worse or whatnot? And people who've never been through depression will often ask me, well, why wouldn't they just lie? Why wouldn't they just say? And often as people get really depressed, they start to lose cognitive flexibility. So if they, they just can't think of other alternatives and often they're so exhausted by the way they're feeling like that, they, they won't bother to lie. They, and I have had multiple clients who have said I was mid suicide attempt, but I made myself throw up the pills. I made myself do whichever, because I, I remember that promise that I made you. So we don't know exactly why it works. We do know though, empirically that contracting for safety does people tend to follow through on their promises. And it's when they are showing reservations on that. That is a gigantic red flag. So we're looking for things like when we're assessing risk, does a person have a plan? If they have a plan, is their plan realistic? How are they thinking about death and the afterlife? You know, so we're taking all of those things into account. I remember I had one girl and I asked her, well, what do you think it's like to be dead? And her face just lit up with a glow of happiness. She's like, I'd be with my grandma again. And I said, oh no, like this, <laughs> like this is, you know, so we have to just assess, taking all those factors into account of what is, what is the entire suicidal risk here. But then when they make those contracts, and then saying like, how, how, what do they need to help support that contract for safety? And what, and when are we going to assess again? Because we never want to say, oh, well, okay, you're not suicidal. You're free to go and see in a year. It means we have to keep assessing until those suicidal thoughts are not coming. So there are some kids I might literally make a contract for safety with every single day mm -hmm. and say, okay, coming back in tomorrow until we're not having intrusive, negative suicidal thoughts. You know, we, we talked about this um, in one of our earlier conversations, which which was not a show. We actually mm -hmm. just talk to, for the sake of talking. Um, and I was always like, I would lie and manipulate with the best of them. Mm -hmm. But when when someone said, can you promise me that you're safe? Can you promise you you're going to show up tomorrow, that you're going to live through today? I could say yes. And I yeah, I meant it. And I was mm -hmm. like, what, what sort of weirdo am I that the, the strongest commitment I'll make is only when I'm you know at my lowest, I'll, I'll promise this guy I just met. That I'll, yeah, I'll keep going. And I've had that. I've, you know, I would look back and like, oh, I really want to do something bad right now. And like, ah, I promised that, that, that therapist that, that I'd stick around like, all right. And so it's really cool to hear you explain it. And cause yeah. Um, and I just thought, am I just bizarrely, you know, <laughs> this weird, I'll be honest at my lowest moments or, or actually sometimes I thought since, I, since this promise is so important, this, this is truly another sign that, you know, I don't really want to die. Mm-hmm. And so again, I think it's that, especially an adult to a to a teenager or, or a child, like someone else believing you that much and mm -hmm. asking you to promise to stick around. There's such a power in that that I never appreciated when I was on the uh, the other side of that. Well, and again, I'm very manipulative, and uh, but what I always say to the students is, I'm never going to manipulate with you with lies. I'm only going to manipulate you with truth. Mm. And I say, you know, if you die, I, I love you. It's going to destroy me. But that's not the reason to stay alive. I don't want you to stay alive for your friends, for your mother, for me. I want you to stay alive because I really, truly believe your life is going to get better. But, you know, we do ask manipulative questions sometimes, like who would find your body? And, you know, like things like that are, you know, like they can stagger a person and take them home to the reality. They don't want to hurt other people. 
And of the hundreds of people I've worked with who've made suicide attempts, none of them, none of the people I've worked with who made a suicide attempt really wanted to die. They just wanted the pain to stop. And so giving any other out for how that can happen, but there, it, and it, this sounds crazy, but it, people are more, they would rather face death than face the shame of going and asking their family for help. Asking because, and unfortunately, this is the truly tragic thing. Very frequently when we tell parents, your child is suicidal, like they didn't want to tell you that though they're just doing it for attention. It's like, no, no one's doing that at that point for just attention. If they are, and if they want attention that badly, there's something else really wrong there. Cause there should be a better way to break a window, do something else like that. Go, you know, like, but the, like, if that's the way they're trying to get attention, we need something's wrong with their system and their way yeah. of getting help. Yeah. I've always heard it, hated that phrase. Cause I'm like, well, then give them some attention. <laughs> like, right. it's e right. That's an easy prescription to fill. Or the other one I always hated talking about a suicide attempt, uh, you know, Oh, it's just, they're just asking. It's just a way they're asking for help. They're just looking for help and attention. And like every other way in case if someone, is in the ocean drowning and says, help, help. You, you go in and help them. But it, like a suicide attempt, it was a cry for help. Oh, we can ignore it. It's just a cry for help. They didn't really, really want to die. Like, well, then all the more reason to help them. Well, a, a thing that people don't realize what a big deal it is, is something called a parasuicide attempt. And a parasuicide attempt is a suicide attempt that we know would not be lethal. Mm -hmm. So a person who they make a like noose for themselves out of like dental floss or whatnot, or they are like just using a butter knife to kind of like slit along their wrists or doing things like that. Everyone knows that it's not likely to be lethal, but what they're, it's, it's a very big deal and dangerous because they are rehearsing. Yeah. And when they're rehearsing that thing, and it means they're doing it with a plan in their mind, and this is like major danger sign. And so somebody seeing that or hearing that might think, oh, they're just doing that for attention. When in reality, like this is, hey, this is one of our last chances. We've got to move now to get this person more help when the parasuicide attempts are showing up. I can remember uh, visiting a family with friends of my dad. I was in middle school and the parents were making fun of their daughter because the night before she had attempted suicide via an overdose of aspirin. Mm -hmm. And they were openly mocking her for thinking that would do anything. And I, I wanted to punch them both in the face. Um, because about a month earlier, uh, mm -hmm. it was the first suicide attempt I remember. I had swallowed a whole bottle of aspirin because I thought mm -hmm. you could OD on anything. I thought anything right. in, the, in the, the wrong amount or the right amount, depending on how I wanted <laughs> to look at it, um, would, would get me out of here. So, yeah, I was horrified that they were doing that. And uh, anyway, ugh, it, it's still, uh, yeah, I, wanna, I still want to go fight them. <laughs> you know? but, it, I, but I never, I never met that family again. That was my only experience with them. It stuck with me for the, my entire life. But yeah, like everything counts. And I, and I had lots of the, the practice, the rehearsing. I had, you know, the cut marks on my, my, my wrists that weren't really like, can I do this? Would I, mm -hmm. Will I bleed yet? Is this knife sharp enough? I had all that sort of nonsense. So yeah, I mean, everything counts. Everything mm -hmm. matters. Yeah. Yeah. And so that the diminishing of people's feelings, and again, I think that's what gets so many again, men to internalize their feelings or express it through anger, as opposed to because when the idea of being mocked for having feelings for having, you know, just this idea of indecision or whatnot, it just it makes a person say, forget it, I would rather I would literally rather die than be exposed myself to that shame and that ridicule. And so that's some of one of the things that we're pushing against with so many families and giving families the education. Most of most families love their children. 
but they're afraid they're unfortunately they're more afraid of creating soft children who are dependent than they are of making they're doing the things that might their children might not survive to adulthood and so it we again we we have to say we prepare the child for the path not the path for the child we're not trying i'm never trying to say just coddle your children but we do have to listen to them and say are we on a sustainable path and are we doing things that are going to make this child feel like they can become an independent healthy adult now they have the skills to do that and whenever we're belittling someone we're diminishing them that's not helping them to become an independent successful healthy adult so in today's times of so much separation and mm -hmm. you know almost civil war level of discourse uh, politically socially are you seeing more of that um, showing up in the lives of kids yeah i think a feeling that just you know for some families like okay we're not raising a snowflake here and you know just oh the, the, particularly for certain families this idea of expression even the term like political correctness well when you say that term you are saying things don't matter unless they affect me or the people that i care about you know because really whenever we're something is politically correct all we're saying is we want to give credence to other people's feelings and a different perspective and way of looking at things so we only are it's it's a matter of diminishment or i was listening to something uh a podcast intelligence squared today about is cancel culture toxic but even, even this idea of cancel culture, it is diminishing this idea, you know, just this saying, hey, people's feelings matter. If you can go through life without going out of your way to hurt people's feelings, try to do that. If you do, just apologize for and recognize it. It's not asking anyone to radically transform the way they're operating. It's just about an awareness. And so, but it, unfortunately, it's been, become somewhat political to just acknowledge and we have had so many more kids since the pandemic come out as gender non-binary or transgender. And I think while kids were on doing school over computers and things like that, and they could turn their cameras off, a lot more of them were able to explore, hey, I can be whatever gender I want. I can be whatever gender really impacts me. And so when we came back from the pandemic, it was like, you know, flowers that sprouted overnight. The kids were everywhere. And it was, it's just been interesting. So I'm seeing things changes on you know, all over the place, but it, it creates a level of anxiety for kids because anytime someone sees someone be judgmental about any other group, it makes them wonder, well, what might they say about me? You know, so if I hear this, my family member and they're rallying, you know, against Black Lives Matter or against anything else, hey, what, what if I expressed that I'm different in some other way? it doesn't feel safe. And it gives them this message. I have to just be quiet and hide who I really am, hide my feelings. Yeah. So that's hard. Yeah. Anytime someone is witnessing an other be blamed mm -hmm. or shunned, then they imagine, mm -hmm. oh, what if, what if I'm another or realizing mm -hmm. I know I am an other, but nobody mm -hmm. knows it yet. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, life isn't easy, but, <laughs> no. but, but it's worth living. Yes. And that, that's, that's a huge, that, that took me decades to get. <laughs> it really did. But that, if I, yeah, if I could uh, enforce some class at, at every school system, it would be the, you know, your life is worth living class. <laughs> but when, And I think if we, if we view life as being unsuccessful, if we're not happy, then lots of people are going to feel like they're unsuccessful. Mm. Life doesn't promise us happiness. Life promises us an experience. Yeah. And I think the more we can say the ups and the downs, like when we go to a movie or a play, we would never go to a movie or play that was nothing but just happy snapshot, happy snapshot. We want some drama, some conflict. I was asking a student today, is friction good or bad? 
And at first he was like, well, bad. And it's like, well, then we couldn't go anywhere. We need friction, but too much is wearing our skin off. It's, it's terrible. So that's, we, we're not supposed to be happy all the time. We're here for an experience. And if we, once we can embrace that, that even the downs are, they're interesting. There's something different. Yeah. And so again, I would rather, when I was a coach, I would say, I would rather lose a lacrosse game, you know, 16 to three than win a baseball game nine to eight, because I'd rather play playing lacrosse. I, you know, So that's like, even losing can be a memory. It can be an experience and let's drink that up. Cool. So you have lots of uh, cool ways that you're of service. So, so I want to move on to, to another mm -hmm. one. So tell me about pause for Patrick. What, what, what is that? So Patrick was my student and during uh, the pandemic, during May of 2020, uh, he took his own life and he and I had been very close, but he was one of those people for whom therapy really didn't work. He had a very hard time expressing himself in words. When he was having a hard day throughout his high school career, he would just want to go home and be with his dog. And that was all he wanted. And his parents, they tried everything. They tried therapy. They tried medication. They sent him to a therapeutic school. They even sent him to a wilderness program. And, you know, they, so they loved him. But again, the pain that he was feeling inside, he just could not express. So when he died, there was a GoFundMe that was made for the family. And the family said, you know, this is nice, but we don't really need this money. We want to do something with it to honor Patrick's memory and his legacy. And so they said, what? What, again, really he cared about was animals and the impact that animals could have. So Pause for Patrick is an organization that's dedicated to bringing the love of animals to the people who need it the most. And so we do that in two ways. We help people who have mental health disorders get emotional support animals. And we also have a team of therapy dog handlers who bring therapy dogs to different, they'll bring them to schools or hospitals. So for people who can't have animals at all, they can have contact with animals. So there was unfortunately in Highland Park, Illinois, there was a shooting at the July 4th parade. So we brought therapy dogs to where the people were, you know, in the days and weeks after we brought therapy dogs to just be with people so they could pet them and, you know, decompress and whatnot. So my role as the mental health advisor. So when a person contacts pause for Patrick, they get assigned a wish grantor who will be sort of their case manager. Some people need help getting an animal. So we can pay up to $500 to help a person acquire an animal. And then if they need training for that animal, and we're not talking about service dog training, we're talking about like general obedience type training, um, but we can pay up to $750 for them so that the dog isn't, you know, getting them kicked out of their apartment. It's not barking too much. It's not doing whatever. And then I, as one of the therapists in our team might write a, assess a person and then write an ESA letter so they can have that animal in their apartment or their college dorm or whatnot. And so again, our goal is just to help whoever needs it. Awesome. Yeah, so, and is, is this, is this local to the Chicago area only or how? No, so far we've helped people in 29 States. And, uh, you know, so it's, we're, and we're actively recruiting volunteers and particularly therapists in all different States, because, you know, Technically, people are supposed to be with telehealth. They've allowed some reciprocity in opening things up. But for example, California in particular, the, the therapist has to be in the state, you know, for the ESA letter to be valid. So I can't just necessarily do a ESA letter for someone in California, even though I'm a licensed clinician in Illinois. So, um, but yeah, so we're recruiting people and we, we help people all over. So they don't need to be um, in Illinois for us to help them out. Awesome. Dan, I want to give everyone a chance to uh, to find out more information about you and the podcast and Pause for Patrick. So is there one place to go that covers that all? Or what, what do we need to, to mention web-wise? <laughs> well, I would say people should go to pauseforpatrick.org. 
and find out more about Pause for Patrick. They can find my bio on there. And then if they do, they, if they are interested in the podcast, they can just go to, they can just Google search, not allowed to die podcast. And then it'll take, whether they listen on Apple podcast or whether they listen on uh, Android, they'll find links to Stitcher. I mean, to, uh, you know, whatever that is that where they would like to listen and be able to rate it. But I would encourage, please, anybody to go to pause for Patrick and spread the word about that, because we feel like there are so many young people who could truly benefit and who might be able to have, whether having a cat, a dog, whatever in their home can make a tremendous difference in their mental health because no therapist is going to be there for you at three in the morning, but your dog, your cat, when you wake up with a bad dream, they might be able to be there and that can make all the difference in the world. Yeah, no, it, from personal experience. Yeah. I guarantee that that can make all the difference in the world. And mm -hmm. yeah, I've survived uh, many times and, you know, down to the moments that I didn't think I was going to get through uh, due to a pet. So that's awesome. Before I let you go, Dan, one final question. Is there one thing that you wish more men knew? That their value as men is, it has to be determined by them. My favorite quote comes from Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. And it's that each man is the arbiter of his own virtue. Meaning, you know, if you, the, the father is talking to his son and he's, you know, the, the son is trying to justify why he didn't stick up for his sister. And he's saying, hey, listen, if you did the wrong thing and you convinced me you did something right, what good is it? If you did the right thing and I don't believe you, it doesn't matter. You have to be able to look in the mirror and every day, like that's your only judge. And we have to stop setting ourselves an example of comparison to any other person. You have value every day just being on this planet. Your presence here is enough. Then if you do anything else to help another person, that's a bonus. But until you believe that, it doesn't matter. Stop trying to prove your manliness, your worth to anybody else. When you, once you can prove it to the guy in the mirror, everything else will take care of itself. Yeah, yeah totally agree. Well, thanks, Dan. Uh, as always, I always love the conversations and, and all the ways of service and value that you are, are being and bringing into the world. Um, and I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel, please subscribe, follow, like, share, do whatever the thing is that's allowed on the platform that you're listening to. Uh, post a review, a comment, share this with somebody. As always, you can reach out to me at realmenfeel at gmail.com. If you want to explore what your life might be like with more authenticity, book a free clarity call with me by visiting theandygrant.com slash talk. And until next time, be good to yourself.